All right, well, the historical narrative of all this is found uh, for your uh, more in-depth study later in Exodus chapter 1 through chapter 14. Now, when we look at those chapters, uh, it, it becomes obvious that the author of Hebrews could have selected many uh, different areas where Moses uh, exercised faith, but I believe he carefully selected these six examples uh, characteristic of Moses' faith, verse 24 to 29. And we pointed out uh, before, the last time we were in the text, that it was by faith that Moses rejected worldly status, verse 24, the son of uh, Pharaoh's daughter. He rejected that. And then the passing pleasures of sin, verse 25, the treasure available to him in the palace. And then by by faith, he forsook Egypt, verse 27, and then he kept the Passover and then passed through the sea, the Red Sea, that is, verse 29. Um, Moses accomplished quite a lot by faith. And, uh, and I think the author had to be selective because there was so much to choose from. And, uh, and he does give more attention to Moses than any of the other characters uh, that he selected. And, and I believe that's important as well. And, uh, and all of the context surrounding all of this uh, just fills in the blanks for us. So I want to look again at some of these details and hopefully bring it into a better perspective. Um, Moses' social status as the grandson of Pharaoh, it really could not have improved much, could it? The only thing between him and and the the highest uh, position in Egypt was the throne. And he was somewhere down the line. But it couldn't have gotten much better for him Uh, Just the throne of empire could have made it better. But he was really enjoying, at least before faith attached itself to him, uh, he was enjoying himself, okay? And with his social status was afforded to him just about everything, uh, uh, every form of carnal pleasure, nothing was withheld from him. And then being in the royal family, uh, he enjoyed all the wealth, all that wealth could provide. It's there, right? in the text. We see that in his upbringing and all of that. He had every advantage. He was enjoying every privilege. Life was good, except from the perspective of faith, except from that perspective. His faith in God allowed him to see things as they really were, and so faith opened his eyes. Now, it is true that you know, placing Moses in Pharaoh's palace is how God delivered Moses from death. But the palace and what it offered was not how God wanted Moses to live the rest of his life. That whole story, of course, is a very uh, clear example of how God sovereignly orchestrates uh, things to his uh, intended end. Amen? It's very sweet. um, But as faith was born in Moses, we don't know exactly when it happened. It's not uh, given to us in the text Uh, But faith in God began to taint his affiliation with Pharaoh's household, and it elevated his desire to be identified with God and the people of God. So faith brought Moses to what we might say was a moral and spiritual dilemma. His people were suffering wrongly while he enjoyed the privileges of the palace. And then faith began to unveil the corruption of his status, his pleasure, and his treasure. It was corrupt. 
So he chose to suffer affliction, as the text says, and to esteem reproach above all that was granted to him in the palace. Faith was doing that to him. And so by faith, without any fear of the king's wrath, it says that he forsook Egypt with everything it afforded, finding his strength, the text says, in the unseen God who he had come to trust in. Trusting in God got him in a lot of trouble. Yeah. Now I want to be clear at this point, Moses didn't do any of this uh, by his own uh, natural inclinations or by his own strength. The text is telling us that it was all achieved purely by faith, all of it, by faith, by faith, by faith. I can't remember the exact count of the author using that, but it's by faith. Faith changed his perspective, faith changed his appetites. Nice uh, lose everything. Well, I guess maybe that's what we get. Did it come back? Okay. Sometimes the iPad feels better in my hand as a Frisbee. (laughs) All this technology. Uh, Faith changed his appetites. How many of you guys have experienced that as you've grown in your faith with Christ? Yeah. Faith changed his motives, changed his direction. Um, you know, I, as I've grown in faith and, and looked back on my experience, you know, faith caused us, and I know faith has caused you to do some pretty wild stuff. Uh, there's been times where I looked back on things that we've done by faith that after I no longer had the faith to do that, I had anxiety, even though it was all done. And I think, well, how foolish could you have been? But when you're in the grip of God's sovereignty and his will, uh, that's exactly how it's supposed to be. And uh, it's kind of a fun little ride. I guarantee that um, Bethany is experiencing that right now. And, uh, and also faith makes carnal people spiritual. Faith makes carnal people spiritual. Faith conquers weakness and it invigorates moral courage. Um, now, there is something about Moses' story that's not typical, which I, I believe is worth emphasizing. We've been talking about it, but typically we encounter a story that begins from the opposite side of things. Opposite side of things. The, the journey of faith moves the person from a humble position to an exalted one, but Moses, by his own choice, as he was motivated by faith, went from an exalted position to a lowly one. And we see the opposite with like Joseph and we see the opposite with King David. But this comes from a high status to absolutely no status. Faith did that to him, okay? Yeah. It was an interesting journey. Um, humility, trading you know, all of those wonderful things he had, at least worldly things, to um, what by the world's perspective was nothing a lavish life in the palace, um, then moving to the, one of the most dangerous deserts in the world, having everything to having nothing, from an exalted to no status, traded his life of prosperity for poverty, security for suffering. Yeah. So he rejected the best that this world has to offer in order to live for God and identify with his people. Now, that's very rare, uh, according to Jesus, who said... It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Isn't this the story of Moses? 
but actually going through the eye of the needle? Yeah. It's interesting. And after Jesus said this, his disciples were astonished, and they said, who then can be saved? Now, I don't know what they thought about rich men at the time, but it was a surprise to them to hear that it would be more difficult for them to be saved than to go through the eye of a needle. Jesus said, with men this is impossible, with God, but with God all things are possible. So what, Moses, what happened to Moses is not what we see every day because of the great difficulty man has in turning away from status, pleasure, and treasure to a humble life of serving God by doing what is right. So his story is unique, yeah? And so if a man is unaided by God, I don't think that he's going to exude the faith and moral courage of Moses. Faith must be there. But if by faith Moses could choose such a thing, as verse, 20, verse 25 says, then I think it stands to reason that the only thing that stands between us and spiritual success that God has called us to is a lack of faith. Yeah, just a lack of faith. If Moses was able to do those things by faith in order to live for God, then I believe so can any of us because grace is abundantly supplied to those who are trusting the Lord. So on a practical level, this applies to anything that God has called us to in the scriptures. And what God has called us to in the scriptures we call uh, the written will of God for our lives. Now how many of you guys have asked, um, what is God's will for me? What is God's will for me? I talk to people all the time and they're saying, I'm just trying to figure out what God's will for me is. And my first concern is always, um, have you fulfilled God's written will for you? Because I believe that the less direct will of God is, has a tendency to be born out of living according to his written will. I believe that very much. Um, his unwritten will pertains to what house should I buy and uh, which, uh, who should I marry? Uh, should I do this or should I do that? And it typically has to do with I, <laughs> uh, conveniently. Uh, his written will is stated clearly, whereas his unwritten will can be more difficult to discern. And sadly, people will give their attention to the unwritten will of God and while well, kind of ignoring the stated uh, will of God that's clear in the scriptures. And, and I think, actually, we like to explore more the unwritten will of God because we get to have so much say in it. It's not stated clearly, which leaves room for our input and our desires to be kind of inserted in all of the gaps, whereas the scriptures state plainly the will of God, leaving no room for our opinions and preferences. And so the objective will of God is set aside for what we think we can manipulate or have our say in, because after all, we're Americans, and our vote should be considered, right? But God knows no democracy. Is that a shock to some of you? God knows no democracy, and uh, we should be most concerned with his concerns, which are found in the scriptures, in the scriptures. And all you have to do is scratch the surface of the new covenant before you encounter God's divine will for your life. And I think here is the real crux of the matter. The moment that we encounter his will, we face a challenge because every one of us are a rebel deep down. It's kind of quiet in here. Yeah, we're a rebel. And that rebel in us hates the will of God, hates the will of God. 
Without the opposition posed by our carnal nature, I think that the will of God would be uh, maybe not easy, but it would be a lot easier. But for now, it's there, corrupting every word, tainting every motive, and so on. So every one of us faces challenges because of the rebel within, especially when it comes to our appetites, whether that appetite is in the context of food, substances, materialism. Uh, Materialism is no challenge this time of year, is it? (laughs) When it comes to sex, we lust for things with our eyes, we crave things with our bodies, the things that we pride ourselves for, whether it be beauty, strength, accomplishments, possessions, or position. Those are challenges for us, and they're not just first world problems, okay? God has called us to a sanctified life where every appetite is yielded to him and, enjoyed, and should be enjoyed by us. I'm not among those that say that Christians should not enjoy pleasure, but all the pleasures of God that he has given us should be enjoyed in the context that honors him. So everyone in this room encounters the instruction of the new covenant as a great challenge and no one has mastered the blessed life that God has called us to. At least if I asked for a showing of hands, I would pray that no one would raise their hand. But we would all like to, amen? We would all like to. But if Moses was able to refuse worldly status and choose affliction by faith rather than pleasure and esteem the reproach of Christ, uh, a statement I'm not ready to tackle at this moment, but I know people are asking, that to esteem the reproach of Christ as greater riches than earthly treasure, if Moses could do that through faith, which Jesus says is extremely difficult for a rich man, then you and I are able through faith to master the many challenges that we face. His unusual example, according to Jesus, He did it by faith. I think that is a huge example to us, okay? He did it. Now, by all of this this statement, I don't mean to diminish the magnitude of what you may be facing or what you've faced and perhaps what you will face in the future. I just mean to elevate faith to its biblical place to demonstrate that nothing we face poses an insurmountable challenge to what God will do with those who trust him. That's what this whole chapter is about, okay? People have a tendency to think that uh, what they're experiencing is the worst thing on record. It's true. I see them in my office all the time. This is the worst thing ever, and it's unique. I'm alone in this experience. No one has ever dealt with what I've dealt with. Well, in the moment there, I, I don't disagree with them. Uh, because it's just not helpful to uh, help grieving people or suffering or struggling people, but they're wrong, okay? They're wrong, okay? We think it's the worst thing on record, and, uh, and we think that because of that, it's beyond the grasp of grace. But the Bible tells us that everything we experience is in one way or another something that is common to the human experience. Of course, nobody wants to hear that when they're going through it, Right? But it's true, Paul says that what you're experiencing, what you're enduring, whether it's temptation, testing, or whatever, he says it's common to the human experience. In other words, our case is not a special case. Our case is a dime a dozen. It is. Now, while we don't like to hear that, it should reassure us because if it is the common experience of humanity, then God knows how to deal with it. Wouldn't that be true? 
okay? He would. He provides extraordinary grace for what is sadly an ordinary experience for us. And so the author of Hebrews, he's, he's selected these people of faith to demonstrate that what God has accomplished through them, he can accomplish through us. Otherwise, listen, all of chapter 11 would be a farce, wouldn't it? It would be a farce. If what was accomplished then in those people at that time, if it can't be accomplished in and through us, then what is the point of chapter 11 in the book of Hebrews? You get it? He's saying the same thing that God did in those people is God intends to do it through us today. It may not be the same miracles, but God revealing himself, his strength and faithfulness to people that trust him, that's what all this is about. That's really going to be the application that he gives us in chapter 12. But he believed that, I believe that. And so I think that a question uh, should be asked, that wherever God is not trusted is where God is not included, and where God is not included, there is a vacuum for vice, and the question is why? Romans 8, 7. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can it be. You see, if God is excluded, we have only the sin nature to operate on. How many have enjoyed that reality? Yeah. If God is excluded by, faith, by unbelief, rather, then all we have is the sin nature to operate on. And if we're operating by our own sin nature, failure will always ensue. Okay? And so Paul concludes, he says, so then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Now, I hope you see this. This is another way of saying what the author of Hebrews said at the beginning of chapter 11 in verse 6. But without faith, it is impossible to please God. Because without faith, you walk in the flesh, which does not please God. It's the same. Those who are not living by faith are by default living according to the flesh. There's nothing in between. So whatever we face must be apprehended by faith or we will default to the flesh, doing things in our own strength, doing things in our own willpower, which will end in failure. The author of Hebrews is trying to elevate us out of unbelief and failure and into faith and spiritual success. And if it is true, and I believe it's true, that spiritual success is acquired by faith and nothing else, and so then where failure persists, we should be suspect that our faith has been substituted for the flesh. It's been substituted with our own strength, our own willpower. So when that happens, it's time to regroup. Okay? It's time to confess our faults. It's time to trust in his grace. And it's time to move forward in faith. Let's look at this in a few other ways. In the text, after Moses fled from Egypt, he lived in Midian for 40 years as a Bedouin before God appeared to him at the the burning bush. And it was at that time that he was commissioned to return to Egypt and then free his people from slavery. We know the story. Moses returned to Egypt, and through him, God punished the, the Egyptians and their gods by 10 plagues. 10 plagues. And then it's here at the 10th plague. Uh, that the author of Hebrews mentions again Moses' faith. He says, By faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, lest he who destroyed the firstborn should touch them. He kept the Passover. Now this was actually the first Passover, the very first one, which was initiated on the first month of the Jewish calendar, the the month of Nisan. Uh, When you read the text, it'll say a bib. That's the older archaic name for the date or the month. And then we know from the story that on the 10th day of the month, 
Every household was to secure for themselves a male lamb or goat within the first year, and they were to keep it until the 14th day. And during that time, they were to inspect it for error, for flaws and things like that, any kind of defect. And on the 14th day, every house was to be purged of leaven, that's yeast, and then at twilight, the lamb was to be slaughtered. The blood was to be gathered, and they would dip hyssop in it, and they were to splatter it on the doorposts and the header. Very interesting ritual. And then they were to eat the lamb, and then nothing was to be left after morning. If they did not eat it all, they had to burn it in the fire. Everything had to be destroyed. And as they feasted on the lamb, everyone was to be fully dressed. They had to have their belt on, their sandals on, and they had to eat with their staff in their hand. Very interesting. Because what was to happen was, as soon as all of this was over, they would be leaving. They would be leaving. In fact, it says, they left in such haste that they carried their kneading bowls in a, like a sling bag on their back with the unleavened bread in it. They were on the move. Okay? And on that night, God visited every home, whether Hebrew or Egyptian, with the intention of killing every firstborn male of every household that didn't have the lamb's blood on the doorpost and the headers. And the text tells us in Exodus that on that dreadful night, there was not a home among the Egyptians where there was not one dead. Not one that wasn't dead. Now this judgment, I think it's important to point out, was actually less than the Egyptians inflicted on the Hebrews. It's dreadful, isn't it, to think of that reality. But it's less than what the Egyptians inflicted on the Hebrews. For the Egyptians murdered every male child born to the Hebrews, not just their firstborn males. So in this judgment, I believe God was being rather merciful to them. Okay? And in fact, if the Egyptians had just let the Hebrews go, there wouldn't have been any of this. And so finally, after all, this Pharaoh lets the Hebrews go, and, and, and go did they. Now the author of Hebrews says that Moses kept the Passover sprinkling the blood by faith. Now he did that because he believed that God was going to do exactly what he said. Exactly. Okay. Now the final plague, of course, I think is the most peculiar and, and the most significant. Because with this plague, there was no protection granted to the Hebrews. Nothing was granted, okay, as there had been with the other plagues. Uh, they were not safe because they were in the land of Goshen, as they had been previously. And they were not safe simply because they were God's people. Without the spattering of blood, the firstborn male of every Hebrew family would have been lost. This is a different kind of judgment here. Okay? If Moses or any of the Hebrews thought they would be spared by virtue of their location or their bloodline, they would have suffered the consequences of the plague. Nothing could have been taken for granted. Faithful obedience was required. You guys, Moses had to obey, or there would have been tragedy. He had to obey, okay? And so he did not hesitate to do it and to communicate it to his people. So in the text here, we see that in the, the context that, that faith moved him to unwavering obedience, and because of his faith, he delivered all of the firstborn males among the Hebrews. This is an important story. Okay. Faithful obedience, or obedience born out of faith, was the only option 
God was not going to deliver his people until he had at least secured this level of faith from them. It's very interesting in the book of Hebrews because the author uses the word faith and obedience synonymously. That poses a great challenge in interpretation sometimes. But then as he's giving these examples of faith, he's saying by faith Moses obeyed. He brings them together again and again. But he wasn't going to honor their faith without obedience. Kind of goes with James 2, doesn't it? Yeah, faith and works coming together. Nobody would be delivered unless they obeyed. Now some of us are coming up short on deliverance. Some of us are. Whether that be from rage, it is a problem for men. Rage, our outbursts of anger where we vent our frustrations by yelling and threatening and criticizing and belittling. Men can quickly become an intimidation monster when they don't get their way. Some of us are devoted to porn or eating or spending. What you lust after is essentially unbridled. That's a lack of deliverance. Some of us yield ourselves to ungodly relationships. And at the end of the day, faithful obedience, which is evaded, would have delivered us. I think that many evangelical Christians are, perhaps they think they're strong in faith, but they're weak in obedience. And their faith does not translate into obedience. And we say, well, we're not under the law, we're under grace. That has, that has nothing to do with what we're talking about. We're talking about obeying God. We're not talking about being subject to legalities or anything. It's obedience. We need to obey the Lord. If we don't, we're going to suffer the hard things even more. We need to fully trust the Lord so that it brings out obedience in our life. You know, Jesus taught that you know, extreme sins require extreme measures. Didn't he say that uh, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off? If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out? That sounds extreme. Now, uh, I hope that most of us believe that he wasn't speaking literally. But the Lord is saying that your sin will require something of you that will bring you to pain. If you are to be free. If you are to be free. It will require humility. It will require confession. It will require repentance. See, doing that is part of obedience. But it is what's required for deliverance. It will require... Uh, uh, it might, well, rather, it might come in the form of breaking off a relationship with someone or something. It is required. It is required. Some people need constant accountability until they are free. Amen? People need that. Let's finish our story with Moses. Verse 29 says, By faith they passed through the Red Sea as by dry land, whereas the Egyptians attempting to do so, were drowned. Now, of course, the text attributes this act of faith to the Hebrews as a whole. It says they, okay? It says they. But Moses was their undisputed leader. He's the one that led them out of Egypt. He led them into the Sinai Peninsula. He parted the Red Sea. He led them through it. And uh, yeah, so I think we should include Moses' faith in this. Now, the historical narrative provides context here. Uh, Pharaoh, uh, by the time they got to the sea, Pharaoh had regretted letting the Hebrews leave. 
And after the grief for his son turned into rage, he decided to go after the children of Israel. And when he finally caught up with them, they were camped on the shore of the Red Sea and they had nowhere to run. They were cornered against the water. And so God divided the camp of the Hebrews from the Egyptians by a cloud that was darkness to the Egyptians on the one side and light to the the Hebrews on the other side. And then God had Moses stretch out his staff over the sea and then God caused the wind to blow all night until the sea was divided, forming a corridor of water with high walls on either side and then dry ground on the seabed. Yeah. The sight before them was magnificent, but I guarantee it was foreboding. Imagine walls of water. Now, they don't understand gravity and all that at that time, perhaps, but they understood their mortality, okay? It must have been amazing, but I guarantee that they were thinking about their mortality as Moses was saying, come on, you first. <laughs> Lead the way, Moses. <laughs> How many of you guys have seen The Prince of Egypt? It's a, actually a cartoon animation. I think the, the whole scene is portrayed very well in the movie, and I encourage anybody to watch it. There are some liberties that they take, uh, at least as far as the Bible is concerned, but the things that we don't find in the Bible are actually from Jewish tradition. But the content of the story is there, and, they, and the goal of the, the, uh, the primary director and Spielberg was to make sure that the miracles came across as miracles. And, and they did. They did. It's a great show. encourage you to watch it. It's very biblical. And so certainly walking into that corridor was met with hesitation and fear. The danger was obvious. Their fragility was clear, okay? And when the Egyptians followed after them, followed after them, and were drowned by the sea, it confirmed every fear of their imagination, didn't it? Yeah. Good thing it happened later, or else they would never have gone in. And and the only reason that that the Egyptians went in to that corridor was because the Hebrews passed through safely. But we have to understand that the Hebrews had no forerunner to go through before them and demonstrate that this hallway was a safe hallway. Okay? It was done purely by faith. (laughs) So God provided the only way of escape for them and it was very intimidating. It was very intimidating. Now I would say that doing what God wants you to do may be the most intimidating or terrifying thing for you. He does require terrifying things. Like right now I'm thinking of Bethany's parents who have by faith trusted God with their child to go into a country that is Muslim majority and hostile towards Christianity. God has required that of them. And so far as I can tell, they're taking it like champs. Okay? Yeah. God may require that you allow your child to risk their life by smuggling Bibles into dangerous lands. And trust me, lands are becoming more dangerous every day. Okay? He may be calling you to give up everything you have, a nice house, a nice job, close friends, all your hobbies in order to serve the Lord full time in some capacity that freaks you out. You know, I know that in this room there are many people that are not living in the context that they believe that God truly called them to. 
I've spoken with you. There was a hesitation at some point in your life and that opportunity has passed you by with regret. But maybe he's calling you to something else. Look, I would encourage you to do it because I like adventure. I like it, okay? Yeah. For some of us, doing something terrifying may be homeschooling our kids in order to spare them of secularization. Now, I don't believe that all parents necessarily called to homeschool their kids, okay? But some of you might be, and you're ignoring it. Freaked me and Shandy out. I've heard the Wiley story. <laughs> and the subject interests me because I keep up on what is trending in schools. The recent um, curriculum for sex education freaks me out. And the sexualizing of our culture, being indoctrinated into our children, maybe that ought to speak to us. Some of you are called to teach or lead in some context of discipleship, but speaking in front of people or leading intimidates you greatly. Now, if you don't do it, I want to call you a coward because I am scared to death of you people, okay? I want to teach so badly that I'm willing to endure your faces. <laughs> I, I do not like standing in front of people, okay? I get physically ill every Saturday night and Sunday morning because of you. <laughs> Thanks for that. But I'm not going to stop doing it because if I did that, it would be in the flesh. I want to honor God with what he's called me to. And it's okay. I'll, this, it, it just is a little physiological stuff. It's okay. But it is. If God is calling you to that, you need to get over yourself and you need to obey the call. You need to just do it. Okay? That's not an endorsement for Nike, but you need to do what you're told. Amen? You expect your children to do as, you're, do as they're told. So don't be a hypocrite. Obey the Lord. Do as you're told. Okay? Can we agree to that? Okay? If God is calling you to that, some of that stuff, please come and talk to me. I want to hear it. I want to pray for you. I want to encourage you, and I will give you opportunity. Not right here, I won't start you out here, okay? But I will start you out somewhere. So oftentimes God will, uh, his will is terrifying, but I believe that there's nothing more wonderful and satisfying than obeying his will. There's nothing better than serving the Lord for the sake of other people, okay? And I'm not gonna tell you that God's will is always safe because that's not always the case. I'm not gonna tell you that it's not gonna cost you because usually it does cost you something. I'll just say that there's something wonderful about living by faith, just as there must have been something wonderful about walking through that corridor of water. Even though you were afraid to do it, who would stand there and really not want to do it? I would. I would. Okay. It was terrifying, but faith drew them into it. It was risky, but it was wonderful. Now, I've always said that when it comes to boys, and it's usually after a boy does something really stupid, that unless there is risk involved, there's no fun. It's true. It's true, especially for boys. And I know some girls like that. My mom was like that when she was young. <laughs> you know, the ski slope has to be steeper, and it always did. The precipice has to be higher. The car has to be faster. The danger has to be greater, and then it's worth doing the first time, and then again, and again, and again. 
right? Boys? I see Blake, he's going, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I believe it's often the case when it comes to walking by faith. If there's no risk involved, what faith is required, okay? And how is it attractive to the believing heart? I don't think it is. I don't want to live my life without doing risky things for God. In fact, I've been wondering when the next venture of faith is for my family and for the church. You know, what is God desiring of us that will be risky and actually require faith? And who will join us? You know, who will preach the gospel? That's getting more dangerous, but it makes it more fun. Right, guys? Who said that? <laughs> yeah. It's a man of faith. <laughs> My prayer is that, is that Bethany leaving will inspire more of you to leave. Not that I want you to leave, but I want people on the mission field. You know, who will risk their reputation for the gospel? Who will stand up against the tide of dissipation being forced on our kids? Who will provide a voice of reason in politics? As Ravi Zacharias says, there's no wisdom at the top. Uh, I agree with him. Uh, who will challenge the darkness of our day? All of those things uh, contain a measure of risk, but it's all worth it. But it will require walking by faith, or you'll stumble in it. Okay? And I, I believe that every believer wants to be true, that all of these things to be true of them. All of us wants to do something for the glory of God. Why not let it be risky? That'll change things up for some of us. Let it be a little dangerous. Let it be a little iffy. I know everybody likes to say, well, that, we want to apply wisdom. We've been in Hebrews 11, right? It wasn't wisdom that caused them to walk through the corridor of water. Okay, that was a, let's just set wisdom, earthly wisdom aside for a minute. And let's just walk by faith. How many people do you think closed their eyes as they did it? Walking by faith and not by sight. Yeah, living for the glory of God. You know, I especially want to set the example for my children. I mean, how many of you uh, parents want specific things said about you by your children when you die? I do. I'd like to write it for them, but that's not fair. <laughs> I want them to say that all of my, in all of my father's weaknesses, he did live by faith for the glory of God. He did the hard things at his own expense, and the expense of his reputation, and perhaps even his own safety. That trusting God and obeying his word was more important than anything to my father. That's what I want to be true about me. But I gotta do those things for it to be true, because I don't want my kids to lie either. My mom bought me a shirt one time that said, live your life in such a way that the pastor doesn't have to lie at your funeral. <laughs> I won't lie about you, so you better get to work. Okay. <laughs> Walking by faith, I believe, is best, especially when you're terrified. I've said enough. Let's, let's stand up and pray. We'll talk about Jericho next week. What a fun piece of scripture that is. Let's pray. Well, Father, as the author of Hebrews is going to connect all these examples of faith to walking in holiness, as I've tried to do this morning, 
Lord, some of us need to wake up. Some of us need to take a good look at our lives, our circumstances, our relationships, our habits, our behaviors, and through the lens of faith, call it what it is. And that by faith we need to confess our sins, which is humiliating, but there can't be humility without humiliation. And Lord, by faith we need to repent and walk in obedience. And Lord, you know what's going on with everybody's life this morning. You know what's in the darkness, you know what's hidden. And I pray that before it's too late, Lord, that they would yield those things up to you. So Lord, then their ears will be clear enough to hear your call for their life. And I pray that when you call, Lord, and you are calling, that we would have ears to hear and, Lord, we would have feet to obey. Lord, help us not to be like so many evangelicals today that, that want cheap grace without loyalty and faithfulness and obedience. Help us to see our obedience to your faithfulness as part and parcel of the Christian experience. Help us to obey the call. And Lord, as we face terrifying things, as we will, I just pray that, Lord, faith would be invigorated in us and we do crazy things. And Lord, you'd be glorified, that people would be encouraged by our example. Lord, that lives would be saved, that lives would be changed. But Lord, you'd be glorified. Help us to get serious about the faith. Lord, I thank you for my church family and just as Paul would say, I'm in labor again until Christ is formed in you. Lord, that Christ would be formed in us. So help us, we pray. Lord, we love you and we thank you in Jesus' name, amen.